This is episode two of Villains, um, where we are some semi-confident that we're going to get through the rest <laughs> of the list in this one episode. If not, we'll be back next week for the third and, and ultimate installment of the Villains. <laughs> and then we'll spend lots of time, I'm sure, talking about heroes too, but it's just such a good list. We just worked it out. If we we managed to get three client types into the last uh, ep, so we're currently on track for five more episodes <laughs> <laughs> at our current rate. So uh, bear with us. No, we'll, we're going to smash through these. We're going to we're going to we're going to significantly increase the number of villains covered in this episode. That's our aim. Okay. Um, so am I still interviewing you two about this since this is predominantly your list? And once again, um, I have had nothing to do. <laughs> All do of my clients are wonderful. A little thing where I tell my clients not to fucking listen. Yeah. <laughs> These are also probably highly likely no longer our clients. So anyone who's still a client of ours can maybe assume that they're not one of these. Great. Correct. The, the, pre- the previous episode was actually recorded over two hours, but after we cut Yeah, no, do the interview. I think that's good. Okay. All right. So we're just going to um, carry on. This is uh, villainous client type number four, the opinion shopper. Would someone care to elaborate? Uh, now, I can't remember if this one was one from your brain. Uh, no, no, this is you. This is you. Um, we've had this before in a project many, many years ago um, where a client literally took her plans to her brother-in-law, who was also an architect, and we we didn't know this at the time, um, and uh, he marked up our plans and sent them back with his comments on how the building should be, should have been designed um, and uh, and the things that we hadn't shown on the plans. These are, these are work in progress drawings. Um, and uh, we kind of looked at the plans at the, at the meeting and we said, well, wait a minute, why didn't you just go to your brother-in-law to, to do this project? And they went, oh, no, no, we couldn't possibly do that. Um, so we we've sort of invented this client type, which is the opinion chopper, who who will be very happy to look at your plans and to sort of you know in the meeting really be happy to go along with whatever that design direction is. But uh, later on, they'll take those plans and and shop them around to various uh, friends and family and uh, and get a, a review from each one. And I think one of the problems with asking people for their opinion is that they feel like they become a critic. And that if you ask too many people for too many opinions, you'll um, you'll just wind up with a lot of people talking because they've been asked to, or, or or reviewing the work because they've been asked to. And I don't think it's necessarily conducive to getting on with it. Have you guys had this uh, same type? We've had the opinion shopper um, with a low budget project um, where they took it to their boomer parents and were like, what do you think we need? And the boomers were like, well, obviously you need at least a four-car garage. Um, You cannot possibly survive um, without it. And so they brought that back and were like, how about we do this? And I was just like, what are you talking about? Like we've been talking about how finely tuned the square meterage of this project is the entire time. And from that point on, it was fully derailed. We couldn't get it back. So... So really the opinion shopper, and we, we have also experienced this as well, but I think the opinion shopper comes in lots of different shapes and sizes. And I think my main recollection of it is where um, 
and I guess the boomer parents would be an example of this, but it's not even another architect commenting on our drawings. It's a whole bunch of other lay people or people somewhat affiliated with the industry. Like I took this to a real estate agent and he told me how to design the thing or a concrete (laughs) or my my brother's mate who said, this is no way, this is buildable. Um, And you're like, well, wait a minute, you're paying us to be your professional, to provide you professional advice. Why are you trusting the free advice your mate's mate gave you over the advice you're actually paying good money for? Mm. And also, yeah, we know how much our own architecture costs to build and we give you that advice. And so then when they start going elsewhere for, for, for all kinds of things, not just financial advice, but design advice, et cetera, we're, we've also got the fucking runs on the board too. You know, if uh, if somebody wants to come in and say, oh, well, you know, that doesn't work. I'm sorry, but you can't really cantilever out of concrete slab to do that. Well, yeah, okay. Show me the times that you've done that and delivered that successfully <laughs> before. Uh, and I can show you on my website where I've done it. <laughs> or you can fuck right off because... <laughs> um, uh, just for young listeners, there might be a language warning. <laughs> I want Yet one of those little E, those little explicit little badges that they put on iTunes. It's a good idea to have a canned response in your in your email ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, well, I think, yeah, we should we should move on from the opinion. Keep going. We've got to hit lots of these guys. We've got to uh, get through them. There was just before we – one last thing before we did. There was something – what were you just saying a second ago before we started dropping F-bombs all over the place? Um, <laughs> runs on the board, something about that. No, just that we, um, you um, know, if, if you're taking our plans to be reviewed by someone else, make sure that that person reviewing it is up to the past. same standard or better than in their capacity to deliver the architecture that we've designed. Yeah, but the fact Even that we've got advice of insulting. that person, you know, means that they aren't understanding what they've got in front of them, what you yeah. are, what you're doing, what your service is. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I remember the thing also. So we, we're like to, to be a bit more balanced with our um, – um, gleeful cr- criticism um, that we're lashing out um, or, or lavishing on the rest of the world um, <laughs> in our conversation at the moment. Have we ever been opinion shoppers? That's oh, the so question. Oh, that's that, I'm question. turning it, the spotlight back on us was. Because the, the context I'm thinking about is, and it, in some industries it's, kind, it's quite accepted. You get a second opinion. If someone says, oh, I'm going to have to cut that off you, in a medical oh, yeah. Yeah. context, you yeah. would often go and get a second opinion. Yes, but you wouldn't go and get it from a tree surgeon, would you? No, of course. So you would all or yeah, a, so a comment a parent. about <laughs> of someone <laughs> of equivalent expertise. That's critical. That's true. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. No. We've definitely got some second advice from, again, yeah, like we've checked, let's say with some engineering's come through and we've been like, oh, we're not sure about this. And we've, we've actually confirmed with, a, you know, another engineer. Is this okay? Mm. Um, but I think, again, that's using the equivalent level of knowledge that we're going Maybe also the point that the, and the frustration of the opinion shopper is, is that your client, Nick, went to her brother-in-law, got these plans critiqued, and perhaps what she should have done is understood the critique, internalised it, and then passed that back to you as client feedback so only like to form an opinion herself about the counter opinion and then present that as her own comment as opposed to bringing in this third party who has no bearing on your relationship whatsoever. Yeah. So if you're going to go and get a second opinion from your engineer, Kate, did you then go back to the first engineer and said, it's all right, mate, I checked with another better engineer and God, you're good? No. 
That's no, you just right. exactly. It was just yeah. an internalized thing, right? You just wanted to sh- ensure for yourself that the advice you were getting from the first engineer was Correct. up to the task, and yep. then you satisfied yourself that it was, and then you just moved on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I certainly didn't ask them to mark up the drawings and then send it. You know, well, yeah, I think um, it just shows a a, a massive. Um, lack of understanding or, or disregard for the process and that that relationship that you're establishing with your designer. Um, and these weren't, these weren't sort of technical questions. These were artistic questions or decisions that were being mm. building. So, you know, a lot of the sub-consultant work and medical work and those sort of things where you get a second opinion, just two technical opinions side by side. Whereas if you go to a graphic designer and then take a and then take the plan, you know, your concept to another graphic designer, then that's a very different um, uh, second opinion. That's a very different opinion shopping uh, yep. process. Mm. Shall we move on? Yes. Yep. All right. Number five on our list. Um, I, love, I just love how there are layers to this. We've got just a couple of dot points in our, in our show notes, but there's so much depth to it. I think as we start unraveling it, it's fantastic. Anyway. Um, the BYO tradie client, number five. Now, I think this was you, Kate, but I think it's about something that I've definitely had as well. I think this was you too. It's me too. <laughs> well, we, um, we yeah, we've had this too. Get clients. And I'm not sure if it's a regional thing or if it's with, you know, if it, you guys are in capital cities, but we get clients who come in who are very well connected with their community of tradies as mates. Um, and they will um, want to use a specific trades. And my brother in law is an electrician. He's going to be the electrician on this project. Um, and that's their sort of, a, you know, their way into the project. That's that's exactly what they want from the start of it. Um, and it takes a lot of sort of convincing to talk about the process and how tendering works and how a builder's team is put together and how that may or may not be the best thing for their project, depending on not they're going to be an owner builder. Um, and that sort of uh, complexity and the layers within layers with that really needs to be explained to a client because we found it's, it's a usually a bad idea if you want that project to say, yeah, sure. I know you know the an electrician, and you know you know the carpenter and a, and a, a concreter, but that doesn't really matter because uh, when it comes time to tendering your project, the builder is going to have their own team. Um, I've well, we've actually seen projects um, leave people leave at that point because they prefer they would have preferred to have those relationships and those people working on that project more so than they want uh, us to be their architects at that stage. Wow. Look, it's a funny thing because it's not, like in some ways, it's not something that has a direct impact on our ability to deliver a project. We can still design and document irrespective who the electrician is. Yeah. It has a huge impact on the builder that comes on board. Have either of you ever um, had that actually go all the way through to the point where the client insists as a special condition on a tendering process that um, the, bro- the electrician brother-in-law be the electrician and then have that unfold on site? I think we've been a bit casual about it in the past and every time it's unfolded on site, it's been a disaster of some way. So you've actually, you've actually said, okay, that's fine. And a building well, we were just like, well, yeah. And some of them were just like fit outs or whatever. So they weren't necessarily 
maybe so significant and then they, yeah, they always go pear-shaped. Yeah, we haven't uh, put them in as a nominated subcontractor into the uh, into the tender or into the um, building contract. But you're right, it always eventually goes south because the the, the loyalty or the relationship exists between the subby and the client. It doesn't mm-hmm. between the subby and the builder. And it doesn't take much for the builder to say, mate, you've got to turn up next Tuesday or, you've, or, or you know, the project's going to go off the rails. Yeah. Uh, and then that person will be like, well, I'll just talk to the client. And then, you know, my, my, my duty or my sort of responsibility is really to the person in charge of, of the builder, which is the client in some way. Um, and that can really mess things up in terms of that chain of command. Yeah. And also then the client can often start instructing that person directly. Oh yeah. Nightmare. And that goes pear-shaped as well. So dear listener, if you are thinking about being a BYO tradie client, I reckon there is a way to make this work. And that is that you think of your BYO tradie as a suggestion rather than as an absolute. So, you know, put the name forward, but you should be absolutely comfortable if the builder turns around and says, look, I'm not comfortable doing this Mm. Um, because um, this is a, a, and this has happened to us before as well. It actually caused the breakdown of the relationship between the client and the builder Mm. or the, the successful tenderer to the point that it derailed the entire tendering process Um, because the builder said, look, I'm, my team has not changed for 15 years. Mm. I use the same plumber and electrician and roof plumber and carpenters and, you know, everything is exactly the same. All it takes is for one person who's not part of that team to make it impossible for everybody else. And mm. it wasn't even like the, the tradie in question was a, you know, a finishing trade that had no other person coming on after them. Mm. It was like an intrinsic trade that was going all the way through Um and the builder was super uncomfortable with it and the, and it was a disaster in the end because it, it, or the, it never got built by that partnership, by that client and builder. Um, so I reckon if you're going to do it, be prepared to have the builder say no and don't feel like that's a problem. Just say, look, I'm, you know, this guy's a great electrician, but if you don't want to work with him, that's your call. Yeah. Yeah, or you're um, using that electrician, if you're promoting that person saying, yeah, this is my brother-in-law, then that might be an avenue to selecting the building team that that electrician typically works with and making them one of the tenderers. And so then, you know, say yes. If you're his team effective become a successful tenderer, then that's great. Now, to put that on its head, I think I have been the BYO tradie architect. In what context? In that I have a few very uh, skilled joinery contractors that I like to specify. That's quite um, common. I've heard of yeah, that from a no, lot I think of that's people. Fine. Yeah. Have you ever done that and it's created tension between the builder and the joinery contractor? I know no. I have. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think so we have had nominated subcontractors in the past. Yep. Um, I remember one time it was a hydronic heating consultant and that was a disaster um, because I think fundamentally and I, I reckon that it's worthwhile exploring the BYO trading client for uh, his or her closely related cl- cousin, the BYO consultant client, oh, which yes. has, which we haven't actually got on our list, but I've just added, oh. but they're, they're the same sort of creature yeah. um, because what's, what we're talking about here is a finely tuned relationship between the different parts of a team and our consultants, our engineers and our, 
quantity mm. surveys and so on are as intrinsic to the way we work as a plumber is to the way a builder works. And if you don't have a clear line of responsibility, so if you don't say, to, if you say you put in a, a nomination for a, a particular um, trade, like a joiner on a project, I would always still say once this, once the contract starts, I don't have any conversations with a joiner. It's your joiner. So you have to satisfy yourself that you're happy to work with them. And if you think it's a deal breaker, let me know because we can't proceed otherwise. Because as soon as it's like an unclear relationship between whose job it is, is to manage the joiner, the mm. whole thing is going to fall to pieces because I'm not going to be calling the joiner to say, where's my kitchen cabinetry? Mm. That's that's the builder's responsibility. And yeah. if the kitchen cabinetry is templated incorrectly, that's the builder's responsibility. So I think mm. you still got to have that clear line of... Um, of communication in exactly the same way you would have with any other trade. Yeah. In Detail is generously supported by our friends at Streamtime, business management software for creatives. Kate and Warwick, you belong to this cult uh, of Streamtimers. Uh, tell us what it's like. Well, um, other than the ritualistic sacrifices, which are super fun, can I say. Um, for data nerds like me, um, I dig it. I dig the fact that I can see it all. I can see how long we've spent on any part of the project and I can compare it in so many different ways. Um, so I do like a regular deep dive, not during work hours, of course, on my, during my time off. Because fun it's, time. I, I do it for fun. Yeah. Uh, and I am the opposite of a data nerd and I love it because it means I don't have to put things into spreadsheets and I can put them into fun little boxes that dangle around because it has an epically beautiful user-friendly interface. Thanks, Streamtime. Thanks, Streamtime. Can we move on to the wide enter because it's my favourite? One of my favorites. You just uh, you've added an extra comment here though, Nick. What's that I about? I did because I think that it's really important that a client understands this when you take on their project about the uh, consultants running uh, and the, in the process of running the consultant team. So the, the the Sparky is part of the builders team and the consultants are part of the architects team of people that they coordinate. So um, in clause 3A of the Millennium Architects Terms and Conditions. Uh, we said as part of the architectural services, Millennium Architects will manage will, Millennium Architects will manage the consultant team and coordinate coordinate their work, including obtaining fee proposals. Clients engage consultants directly and are responsible for paying all their consultant invoices, uh, blah, blah, blah. But um, at the end of it, it says, while we welcome suggestions for consultants, the architect ultimately decides the makeup of the consultant team. Mm. So that is good. I'm just writing that down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> While we welcome suggestions for consultants, <laughs> we. <laughs> I'm not joking here. I, I, this is gold. Stand up. <laughs> well, isn't it? The architect ultimately decides the makeup of the consultant team. Yeah. And I think that's just a, a good one to have in there because it kind of, it almost brings forward that discussion. If somebody was thinking, well, you know, I, I know six or seven different people who can all be part of this team, yeah. uh, it, it might it might on the face of it feel like the client's being very helpful and trying to um, put those names together. And that is, that is helpful. And sometimes we've had a client connection for civil engineer or whatever, and that's worked out really well. Um, but there are, you know, there's not only 
that chemistry that you need between an architect and a consultant, but you also need um, back-to-back insurance cover and, and other technical things like that mm-hmm. where you need to be using people that you're um, confident in their abilities and that they can deliver on time and yada, yada, yada. So um, that's something that we have put in over the years, which I quite like. White Excellent. Answer. All right, the white answer. Um, <laughs> so this is actually a has a number of um Subcategories. Subcategories or sort of sort of overlapping characteristics. So um, I think this one um, stems from you, Kate. Well, why don't you uh, kick, it, kick us off on what the white answer is? Are you going to bleep out when you say dickhead? Or? Uh, no. <laughs> Marty, leave that in just in case someone of... One of the white answers listening. Um, no, the white answer was a really was a really big um, learning curve for us as a practice, and we experienced it a few times when the uh, wife of a marriage really followed our work and loved it, and would inevitably engage us in some way. And throughout the process, the husband would, you know come to meetings and, you know, start derailing the conversation, whinging about the budget or, you know, and you could sort of tell um, behind the scenes before they got there, there was always a little bit of tension in the air. And then inevitably throughout the process, that husband would slowly chip it away at the, at the wife's opinion of us to the point where um, it, it would just, you know, they won, they won that battle and we would either leave or they would leave. I mean, the, the white answer fundamentally um, is it's a, it's about you know not having access to the full decision making team, isn't it? Yeah. And it could be the wife or it could be the husband who is behind the scenes. But either there way, a- there's danger there because you don't have a, you don't have transparent you don't have communication. Buy-in. You don't have buy-in from both decision making parties. Yeah. And all that, what usually happens though is that the husband is set up. Um, your thing, Dar. You go off and you, you're the creative one out of the two of us and, and you're really, this is your passion project. So I really want you to just, you know, you choose the architects, you you do it. And then it, and then they just spend the next however long just slowly destroying everybody in that relationship because they're not in control, which is all they want to be. Because you can say that all you want, that, oh, no, no, it's you, you, your decision, you, you go and handle it, um, whether that be the husband or the wife. But ultimately at the end of the day, it's both of your biggest investment that you've Correct, made in your entire life. Um, and if you're going to work for 20 years to pay for a $2 million house, you sure as hell want to have confidence that the team is delivering properly. Um, if there is one member of a marriage or a group or a team or whatever sitting in front of you and the other one is some sort of silent partner, hmm. you be careful because there is a, like a 99% chance that that other person is going to white at you. <laughs> And I think it hints to, uh, of also of something else going on behind the scenes with that couple. Yeah, that they can't, yeah, Which meet is, the architects together. It, it should definitely be a unit of psychology in architecture school. Oh, there is so much um, marriage counselling that happens at the around the architects' meeting room table for sure. Oh, my God. Um, you know, it's interesting. This one is also one that I think affects or afflicts um, non-residential projects, you know, working with mm. state government, council bodies, commercial yep. groups where there is, and in that world, they're all called stakeholders, right? But you've got the key stakeholder who is not engaged at the right time. And then, and it's interesting because it's there's no, there's none of that kind of like syrupy, difficult, chewy, hard to kind of resolve 
conflict that happens where the husband or the wife is absent. So that was the sub-layer that we had in this category, the absentee client who just, you know, never turns up to meetings. But you'll have some stakeholder who is actually, you know, has a very important opinion about, you know, some sort of requirement of the project and then gets addressed way too late into the process and then comes in and says, oh, no, no, we need to have these other things and go, well, wait a minute, like why weren't we told about this? Why weren't they consulted when we, you know, when we were already, when we were actually making these decisions? And and I think an enormous amount of money of public purse gets spent on redoing design work because the wrong um, government body was was consulted at the wrong time. Yep. Yeah. Hugely inefficient. So is there anything that we can um, do as architects to um, escape the, the negative effects of the white answer? I think you just can't have one. Well, I mean, sorry, it's different in the government situation, but I think in the residential setting, if you've got one person out of a marriage sitting in front of you and not the other, or or the other thing is if you're, they're in a meeting and you're seeing the, the, one of them cut the other one off is always a good sign that that's, things are going to go wrong. Um, I think if you see that, um, you need to really investigate how invested they both are and make sure they're both there in meetings and that you feel that they're both, you know, on the same page. We have a, we, we like to get the clients at the start to nominate a decision maker in the relationship. And we oh, really like you formalize that. You say one of you is going to be our point of contact. Yep. yep oh, absolutely. Wow. Um, and, uh, and I always try to email both clients, but sometimes I might even just, you know, if we're going back and forth with one client and they've emailed me without CCing their spouse, it's, um, it's a bit tricky if you reply all or choose not to, but, um, anyway, the, if, ideally though, you try my advice for somebody in this, who's sort of trying to set this up for their own practice would be to, We've got this at the moment. We've got a, a, a husband and wife client, and the husband's a um, specialist doctor, and he's only available at 11 a.m. on Thursdays. And it's great because we get to meet with him. He's got a regular gig where he can come in on that time, um, and we get to meet with the, both the clients. Um, and it doesn't feel as though we have to explain the same thing over and over again. And that's what you the sort of trap you get um, uh, into if you've got uh, this sort of singular or the absentee client is that if you think that you don't have to explain everything over again, um, then you're kidding yourself. You're going to be explaining it to one client and then that other client, the, the first client that you've explained it to goes home and tries to explain everything that you did to their spouse. Um, and then probably not as well. The tricky question. And then they go, I don't know. And so you're doing the double the load. Um, mm. So if you can work it out any one, that you can actually get both of those clients in time, take it. I'd also say that there's a red flag that occurs with the wine enter every time where they start to, and it feels a bit weird and you'll notice it if it ever happens, that the the white enter starts to query random things or pull up in an email or in a meeting that you've made a mistake somehow. And you're like, you know, oh, I'm, I, I measured the tree away from the house um, that you've shown as 3.6 metres and it's actually 3.68. Um, yeah. You know, let us know when you've updated that type thing. And you're like, hang on a second, that's really weird. Like why is this happening now? And inevitably that is, it's a red flag that that person is, is chipping away at um, 
at your ability to do the project and you need to get out. <laughs> and so have either of you ever been a white ant or another in your own context? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking. Um, I, I reckon. I, I reckon we probably all do it actually, but we do. But like maybe not in you know, like in a partnership. Yeah, you are constantly delegating duties to each other, um, and you know, like home admin, or or you know, I'm going to make all the decisions about what we're reading this week, or you know, who our family doctor is going to be, or whatever, and the other partner is going to be the one who makes all the decisions about the dog or, or, or whatever the case might be. And I, I think that probably from the client's perspective, it's like in your context, Mick, you've sort of already got that set up where you've got a single point of contact, but you're still trying to make sure that when it comes to big decisions, that both parties, both members of the decision-making team, the marriage or That's whatever ideal. the case might be, yeah. uh, are there because um, there's a difference between the day-to-day you know, you know, just overseeing, you know, keeping in touch with your architects and making sure that things are going well and making the call about whether or not you're going to have a flat or a pitched roof in because your architect's presenting a couple of options to you, you know? Exactly. Yeah, there's a difference between, you know, can you send me back that uh, authority to proceed with the land survey? You know, that, who cares? That's, you know, one client can do that. But if you are doing a design presentation, for example, um, yep. you want them both there. Okay. All right. Let's move on. Are oh, we crushing this? So we're, this is number four for the day. Uh, up to um, the seventh uh, villain, um, the emailing coward. Um, we get this so okay. often. <laughs> I reckon you should handle that, Warwick. <laughs> what, who are your emailing? Oh, no, who are they? Name them. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about any uh, experiences you've had, Was. This connects into a later one, one of our sort of more um, colourfully named um, villains, which we'll get to in due course. But it definitely ties into the the person who represents themselves differently via email and in person. And we've had that a lot. And it actually isn't necessarily about, um, it might not even necessarily about revealing their true self via email or revealing their true self in person. It's just literally they're quite friendly in person and always very conciliatory and collaborative and so on. But then via email, somehow through their professional lives, they have just developed a style of writing that is incredibly dictatorial. And it's hard to reconcile the two sort of faces to the one person, but it exists and you just have to like, and, and the way we deal with it, I guess, to jump to that question is, is we just try and shift those conversations as soon as they start getting angsty into face-to-faces or phone conversations because the emails are just incredibly unproductive. Mm. A lot easier to come out swinging in an email than it is to actually pick up the phone and uh, and say those things to somebody's uh, I also think that the emailing coward is the person who, and maybe this is because they don't feel comfortable um, in that in that sort of collaborative environment that the studio meeting or presentation is supposed to be where you're saying, you know, we could do this or we could do this or how, how do you feel about that? Or, and you just get nothing out of them. And then, you know, like a week later you get this 10 pager about all the things that they hate about the design. And you're like, if you can't, you know, again, that's probably another red flag because for starters, that email is terrible usually. Um, but also it's basically that if you can't give the feedback in the session when you're invited to give the feedback, then that's probably no point having an architect. 
Kate, you've got a great way of responding to an email where a client might list out eight pages of whatever. Uh, yes, we discussed this off air, didn't we? I love your <laughs> your response. It's. Do you remember what it is, Kate? <laughs> no, what is it? I've got a few. <laughs> It's, it's just a picture of your bum, and it's <laughs> no, it's, you don't moon your clients. You um, you say, uh, well, I think one of the things you did say was that if you, you, you know, you could go through this big long list and you could try to you know respond to it because actually, what you've brought up here are a series of really interesting points, and I'd be happy to go through these with you at our next meeting. Oh and yeah, yeah. Simple, easy response, and I used it last week, so thank you. Oh, no props. It worked? Yeah, it worked, it worked a treat. Um, we also, actually covered it. We did. This was We covered this one underneath um, a client villain number two, the time burglar. Oh, the time burglar, yeah. And that's yeah, a really yeah. great way of shifting yeah. the ever-expanding email list of things to do into a much more productive um, watch session that yep. doesn't just sap your time. That's where it came from. Yeah, um, yeah gold. Worked an absolute treat so um uh thank Sweet. you kate Fitzgerald. thank you indeed. <laughs> so have you guys ever been emailing cowards oh hell yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> bullshit kate you kate is lying she is lying oh. i do not have that kind of time i love calling people i'm a calling coward i am a, I'm a in your face caller <laughs> a professional email I, I, I consider it to be my job. Like I, <laughs> I write lists for people for all the stuff that they need to do all the time. Like, and I like to record it. So, you know, in my, in my dealings with consultants and staff and, you know, everybody else, I think it, 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 if it's done correctly and positively, you can do um, a great amount with emails uh, as a written record of what's required to be done. Where it's probably not email cowardice is that I never uh, bring up a point of, you know, if I'm telling somebody off or, or there's something or there's a problem or there's you're something. You're not an emailer, Kate. You're just an emailer. I don't know if you're like trying to empathise with this person. No, no, Kate, I think we're going to have to see an example <laughs> of one of these emails for us to be able to make that decision. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'll just give you my Gmail login. Yeah. I think you'll need to forward a 10 us an page email about all the things you hate about that person or hated about a design or hated about a service. We're talking about criticism, aren't we? Yeah, it's criticism. That's the key, you know. Yeah, but um, no, set, setting stuff, yeah, uh, targets and, and and things to do is not not necessarily email cowardice, but uh, <laughs> it's so tough on yourself. <laughs> I think this one man. this one speaks to like a broader um, conversation around communication skills, and generationally, I think different generations deal with communication in different ways. And I've noticed, for instance, that. Um, Picking up the phone and calling someone is hard for younger generations. Yep. That, mm-hmm. that it's easier to, you know, push something off your plate, fire an email, even if that email is only going to spur on like an avalanche of emails that then yeah, jumps into time way. burglar yeah. territory. But so training yourself to um, shift, be able to be comfortable to shift back and forward. And I think probably there is no right answer. It's not like you should always call or should always have meetings or should always email. You should yeah. just be able to yep. see when a particular mode of communication has stopped being productive and is starting to get, you know, um, aggressive or whatever, and then just and move to the other one. Yeah. 
Yeah. Also, I just, yeah, maybe I've already gone through this and in the interest of being short, we've had meetings where we've, you know, sat there across the table and thought that our clients loved a design only to find, only to get a 10 pager like two days later. And we're just like, we're out. If we can't have an open and honest conversation face to face. We've got that client type coming up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of our final ones. Okay. <laughs> should, should we, um, should we move on? Boss client. The boss client. Oh, the boss client. This is this is fascinating. This one. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. We're just going to leave it there, folks. Uh, thanks um, for joining so, us. <laughs> uh, Kate, um, how uh, how many tens of thousands of dollars of therapy have you spent to, uh, <laughs> to recover from boss, your bus clients? Oh gosh, this is really interesting because. Um, <laughs> Funnily enough, we spent ages and ages trying to, well, when, in the early days of Whispering Smith, we were trying, someone was like, you should all, you should try and outline your ideal client. Yeah. Um, mm. And we were like, okay, well, you know, we want someone who's like, you know, actually you think we might want um, someone who's strong and loves design and uh, is really engaged in the process and all of these things. And in the end, we sort of realized that we actually just kind of outlined an alpha mum who is so unused to letting go of any sort of control because they're used to being the boss of literally everything in their lives that we actually almost couldn't work with that person until we point blank said them, either we're in charge of this or you are, but we won't be there if you are. And that like, it was so, uh, critical for us to work that out as a practice that we'd outline this person that they were attracted to us as a, as an architect, but it was, it was, yeah, something that had to be really sort of fought out in the early days. Otherwise we couldn't work with that person. But yeah, that's a, uh, that's our experience with a boss client. So the boss client is one, and we've got this in our show notes is someone who treats you like an employee um, or yeah. a, a minion to, um, delegate to, but not someone who, and I think this is the, the critical thing that, you know, when you're engaging an architect, you're engaging somebody who knows something or a lot about something that you as the client probably don't know anything about. And we do that in all our lives. Like we, that's why you engage specialists. If you knew how to do it yourself, you just do it yourself. Yeah. But we get all these other people in us, be it a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or an architect to do the things that we can't do. And so the boss client I'm, I'm imagining is an incredible micromanager. And when I say incredible, I don't mean that in a good way. I mean that in a bad way. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to put fucking in between there. <laughs> is that, is that, that's right. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also because the architectural process is so cl clearly de defined and connected to the client architect agreement and your fees and all that kind of thing, you can't have this person just coming in and being like, oh, well, I want you to do the interiors tomorrow and then this and then this and then this. You go, well, hang on a sec. Like, I'm really sorry, but you've signed an agreement and this is all the stuff in it. So, yeah. I will. I, I go as far as copying and pasting the. <laughs> the requirements that we have in our contract and say so these are the six things that we'll be doing during design development. Mm. Uh, thank you. Um, because at, at, at a certain point, you do need to remind the clients that you've actually formalised what your um, re required services are for a per stage um, and, and what's to be expected. Um, and whilst you're trying to be very pleasant about it, at the end of the day, we've got to get on with business and we've got to do it in a way that you know, suits us um, as the provider. I should note at this point, actually, that we sometimes it's just that and we've talked about this um, boss client being the alpha mum. Sometimes the alpha mum is just completely unaware that they can let go 
and trust you and that you've got it. And sometimes you just have to have that real heart to heart where you say, you know, we're both alphas here, mate, and you're going to go be the alpha over there and do your thing and manage all that shit. I've got this. And they'll either respect that and love the hell out of you for it and then leave you alone or alternatively, you know, it'll go south and that's the end of it. But at least you know, you know. But that's interesting, isn't it, that you've got these um, uh, people like your, like your alpha mum type of person who they're so used to being in charge and being the person who steps up and takes responsibility and gets shit done and, and actually. And they're so used to everyone fucking up as well that they just yeah. are completely not ready for you to yeah. take control of it. That's right. And I think they're, they're, they're honestly scared for you to take those reins because they're worried that you'll make a mistake and that, you know, if only they'd said something sooner, they could have helped you. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's what micromanagement is, right? When you don't have enough trust in the person who is doing the job to do it on their own terms and for themselves um, on your behalf. And so I, mean, I think that one of the greatest um, qualities, and we'll get to this at the, at the culmination, I guess, of our heroes and villains discussion in a, in a following episode, is, of the really ideal client is one who trusts you to do your job properly. Mm. Um, and, in fact, I bet you that the breakdown in trust probably underpins a bunch of the villains we've talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of things we love here at In Detail, have I mentioned how much we love Archie Team? Guys. We love it too. And uh, I've got to say the uh, the online forum for me is the, the absolute um, best part of Archie Team. I love uh, how people are, are contributing and uh, letting their guard down and, and it's a real insider's sort of uh, view on, uh, on what's happening in the architectural world. I think that actually can, for me, it contributes to the overall role that Architeam has as this amazing incubator for small practice um, that allows small architecture businesses to emerge and grow and succeed. Thanks, Architeam. Thanks, Architeam. Now, flipping it on its head, because we'd like to do that in this podcast, who has been a micromanager of their own? Oh, support? my God. I've micromanaged the shit out of everybody for my whole life. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now who's being too hard on themselves? That's how I know. Like I had to literally you know, you sit down with my clients and be like, don't ball a baller. Like I do this every day. You know? <laughs> and they were like, all right. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I see you. I know you. Tip of the cap. <laughs> real recognizes real. Uh, look, I, I think that um, delegation is something that Erica and I both had to learn. It wasn't something that um, school, and it's interesting, like the way our education system is set up is to assess individual merit. But actually in the workplace, individual merit is rubbish. It's always team oh, yeah. merit. Um, and so it's either upwards delegation or sideways delegation or downwards delegation, but whatever hierarchy you're in, we are constantly relying on other people to do their jobs so we can do our jobs. And none of us were ever trained how to do that. The closest I ever got was like a, um, you know, a group project um, in like later year design um, unit, um, project at uni. And I actually quite enjoyed that, but Probably because I, I decided I was going to be the boss. Yeah, you micromanage the shit. I micromanage the shit as everybody else. Well, that, which is that not fine, but it, most of the group projects in uni are Lord of the Flies. It's, it, you know, mm. horrible. It ends up being 
self-appointed bosses and and um, trying to be, you know, driving their vision and then simultaneously disappointed by the lack of effort of everybody else in the group, yeah. that if there is no hierarchy, what, what would be an interesting group project is if somebody was uh, randomly selected to be the design director, the other one was, you know, you, you, you assign various roles. Um, do you know what, in, like, in the tech world when they do... Um, uh, tech jams where everyone will get together over a weekend you know, over a period of 24 or 48 hours, come up with some sort of, you know, product or something in the yep. credit, you know, a group will organically um, emerge, you know, five people will get together and say, right, we're going to work on this. That's what they do. They will often assign a CEO to the team from the very, very beginning when it's like way too young and small and earlier company to have a CEO because they're like, ultimately, we're going to need to have someone who is the arbitrator and the visionary visionary, and we can't all have a vision um, because if it, if it does, we're not going to be working on this together. We need to trust one person to guide that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so that would be a really fascinating exercise to be trained to do and to be both a person at the top and, and not. And presumably, if you're doing one of those tech jam bizos in a, in an architectural or design sense, you've got an opportunity to you are the CEO this in this project this week, and then the next time it happens a week later, you will you know somebody else, and it, it, you get to rotate those positions. I think what uh, mistake we make with architectural um, group projects is that they tend to run for twelve weeks or something like that, which is far too long to be stuck in that one role as a student. Yeah, feels like forever. Yeah. Um, I, I look, I love your um, comment, Kate, about, you know, either we're running the project or you are, and if it's the latter, then we won't be around. I think that's fantastic because we have critiqued clients before for micromanaging us, and it never goes down well. Telling someone that they're micromanaging oh, yeah. you is never something that someone wants to hear, but mm-hmm. I think you can probably talk about it much more productively if you, if you say, look, You've engaged us to do a job. Either you're going to let us do that job or you're going to do the job for us. But if you're going to do the job for us, we're out. Um, and that's fine if that's how you want to run things, but you've engaged the wrong people to do that mm. job. I reckon there's got to be a, a less combative way of saying that even than that. Even that. Even yeah, <laughs> it's I not like, like I'm out the door. Dad. It's, either, it's either <laughs> us or nothing. I've said before we are not the right fit for you. Yeah, but these are these are questions. These are things that you say when you're mentally you're off the you know, you're, you've walking out. Yeah, but it also took me a decade to learn that you can't fix people. Like change, to change someone's behaviour is, um, so my dad is a football coach and he always talks about this. Um, you can ask someone to change their behaviour, but, you know, if they don't, then there's nothing you can do about it. You've just got yeah, to- doctors know that all the time. Don't stop smoking and your lungs will get better. And then six months later, I'm still smoking. Yeah. Yeah, I love your comment. Okay. Change is that the theme of our podcast now? Yeah, People correct. Don't change. People don't change. <laughs> can't change. Well, you can't change them in an architectural process. All you can do is design them a building. But if they don't want to get out of the way to let you do that, then you just got to let them set them free. Let let them go back into the wild. I just I just want to make the observation <laughs> um, to our lovely listeners that when Mick said, "I'm sure there's a less combative way to say <laughs> either let us do the job or we're getting the fuck out of here." And Kate's response was to basically do the business equivalent of saying, look, look, darling, it's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. <laughs> yeah. Which Works. is the chicken shit way of saying, we're getting out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
I love it. I love it. It's so good. There is probably a less combative way of doing it in a way that helps maybe the relationship get back on track. But I do think that that's the other thing that, you know, you never get taught and that is how to know when the best thing to do is just to pull the ripcord and get the hell out of it. Yeah. I think that's a whole another one, another episode. Of knowing when to kill the kill the relationship uh, how how to do it On it's how all to do it. well to work out that it's good that it's over but how do you do it and what yeah. are the ways that you can implement that and what's in your fee proposal and you know etc oh, etc so important and i think that could be beautifully bookended with what you do when you're other on the other end of that if a client terminates their agreement because mm. um, it happens it happens a lot in the industry i'm uh, writing it down how to terminate a client architect relationship um okay so we've probably we've been going for 40 something minutes now are we we've we've still got uh one two three four five to go through are we gonna i think we should come back next week i, I think fake lawyer should be done before we go because it's a it's a, it's a quick one but all right uh, all right well and that's it and then we'll do the last four next week and, and, and then, then the, the, we'll also hit some heroes at some point well, yeah. next time yeah, no, no, no. all negative at least half a podcast on good clients <laughs> <laughs> no, no, at least. okay so the fake lawyer talk tell, tell um, us about that one is that something that you wanted to talk about kate first or no, this is yours this one's yours man we um we occasionally get uh, a client who is very, very confident of their own uh, abilities and their own understanding of the way that everything works um, mm. on the process. And um, the term we use around the office every now and again is fake lawyer, where somebody <laughs> who massively overestimates their expertise in a particular area, whether that be uh construction law or planning building contracts building contracts all <laughs> that sort of stuff um and uh and will you know talk as if they're a, a, a lawyer with extensive experience in that area um and it's a little bit disconcerting and the first time a couple of times it happened to us we we're like oh shit this person really knows what they're talking about um uh, maybe we we don't and we had to sort of double check what we what our thoughts were on on a particular clause in the contract or um i think it was the application of liquidated damages or something like that mm. um and then after we realized that you know we hadn't gotten it wrong all these years and that we actually did know what we were talking about. Um, it, uh, it, it all came crumbling down, but um, it's um, this sort of, it's again, it's a little bit about uh, power dynamics in the, in the uh, client and architect relationship. Um, and also about a little bit about, you know, bluffing and bravado that sometimes people um, who wish they knew or wish they, that the, um, a particular situation would go there, their way can often just kind of walk into a situation and say, no, this is what's happening. And if they do that very confidently, um, it can often feel as though uh, you're not on the right side, but um, uh, you know, this is just a, um, I suppose just a, a lesson on, on, or not really a lesson, but just to tell people, um, you know, that often you've got to back your own judgment. You've got to trust yourself that you know what you're doing. Can I just ask you is the fake, I think there's also like fake interior designer, fake land you know this is like a whole heap of things. Oh, <laughs> but is the is the fake lawyer is it usually a um a death knell look i think it's it's um is it a really bad sign it doesn't usually get into it unless it's right in the middle of a project the couple of times it's happened to us has been right in the thick of contract administration when there's mm -hmm. 
a problem and um, and a client said, well, you know, this is what I'm entitled to. This is the this is the way that contract oh. interpreted. interpreted right. um, this is what's happening, and um, it gets to the point where you you know you second guess your own understanding of how a construction contract works, and you go, wait a minute, is that, are they right or am I right? Um, and it's about I think you know it's almost bullying your your point of view and your financial sort of um, goal as a client um, over the top of what's right and reasonable um, and correct in the interpretation of a contract. Mm. Um, Can I? Yeah, you go. Uh, well, I'm, I'm one, I want to ask some more questions as well to understand the fake lawyer because I've got a couple of liner notes that I've added. I'm now wondering whether or not these belong here. Um, and I, I feel like we've had this type, but it, it wasn't just restricted to the law like it wasn't just about contracts it was about everything Mm. and i feel like the fake lawyer potentially is the person who wants to know everything all at once about every part of the project even if the decision is clearly something that should be delayed until later but they need to know it right now because somehow they've formed an opinion that it should be known now i'm going to refer to you to client type number two time burglar also, the process Nazi because <laughs> oh, yeah, process Nazi. Yeah, well, it's not just about time, but yeah, it could be definitely. Well, it's funny because we've got things like micromanagement cropping up in lots of different it's in seven um, different types. Yeah, the other <laughs> one I want to know about then is what about the person? And I actually put this one under the boss client, but and I forgot to bring it up then, but it could also come under the fake lawyer about the client who has opinions about things they shouldn't. Yeah, like the location. That's what of I was kind parts. of saying about the um, the fake interior designer. You know, well, I've been to this rep and 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 they've they've told me that never, you know, this this material shouldn't be used in this way or whatever. Well, that's probably the opinion shopper. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm talking about like something that's deeply technical, which is I think what you're getting at, Mick, about the fake lawyer, about the construction contract, which we use as architects every day. Like it's it's our bread and butter of, you know, of how we engage with builders. And so a client, mm. you know, comes in, thinks they know the contract, have, have never had it, never had any on the ground experience with it and then start, you know, dictating how it's supposed to be actioned. Exactly. Yeah. And the same, is the same, could the same thing be said about the client who has opinions about downpipes or has opinions about, um, you know, how thick an air gap in a brick veneer wall should be? Or, you know, stuff that is deeply technical, has no aesthetic impact, perhaps, has no, is something that a layperson should fundamentally have no, or a layperson fundamentally has no knowledge about, but still has an incredibly um, opinionated opinion on. Yeah, a strong opinion about how it, this is the way it has to be done. Yeah. Well, so even had a situation. Well, yeah, even things like I've I've been I've on I've been on the internet and I have researched this, <laughs> and on this blog I found this thing about. X, Y, Z, and it says this. And so that's what we'll be going with. And you're like, cool. <laughs> okay. So I, I feel like the fake lawyer can be um, the co-badged, fake the fake architect or the like <laughs> the, doc, the Dr. Google, the architectural version of Dr. Google. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that only leaves us with 45 more client types to go through and <laughs> make them people. Yep. I'm um, looking forward to it. That was an excellent session. Oh, wait a second. Before we finish, we need to ask ourselves, have we ever been the fake lawyer? No. Ooh. I reckon I have. I reckon I have too. Yeah. God, you guys I, are I, jerks. Yeah. Such a jerk. 
<laughs> I, no, I think sometimes I've I've looked at a an application of a different type of contract or a different type of sort of like maybe consumer law or something like that, and I've thought, oh, I can interpret that because I know a building contract back to front. Um, and then I've got a couple of mates and siblings who are lawyers, um, and you talk to them about it and they go, yeah, except you're not right at all. Uh, this is actually what it is. And it makes you realise just how knowledgeable um, a good lawyer is about, you know, so many things that, uh, so many um, nuances that we wouldn't yes. get. Yeah, yeah, which is why, you know, if you need to clarify something in the contract, you use your 15 minutes of free legal advice, you know, whereas a client... <laughs> As a client. Not from us, from the architects. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not from us. From the ACA, if you also want to join up. the. Uh... Yep. Does Aki team have a, have a lawyer on staff? Yep. Oh, not on staff, but, you know, a consultant who right. helped, yeah. like, prepare different, you know, documents. Um, well, thank you, Aki team. Yeah. Thank you, Aki team. Thank you, Aki And stream time. <laughs> but don't call them for legal advice. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, well, look, with that one... Uh, Let's wrap it. Great. Another look. I great think that's episode. another great episode. Well done, team. Yeah. Now, uh, Warwick, can you tell the good people where they can find us? I would love to. I'm so glad you asked. Um, no, but you're just so good at it. Yeah. Well, so because good. I just go back to the script we have and read it out. I don't know. No, if, can't you guys can't do that. <laughs> no, you have to do it, Warwick. <sighs> Hilarious. Um, so. Uh, we have been um, Kate Fitzgerald. Hello. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my pause has got to be twice as long. Yeah. Mick Maloney. Thanks, Warwick. <laughs> and, and me, Warwick Mahaley. We are a totally professional bunch, and um, this has been in detail. The show that takes one hour. <laughs> That's right. Um, that takes you behind the scenes of creative business. You can find us at www.indetail.show. And as a fun fact, the dude who invented the World Wide Web, I can't remember his name, his one regret apparently is that he called it the World Wide Web because it is the worst, like, acronym that is the hardest thing to say ever. (laughs) If it had been VVV, that's easy. Um, Anyway. Hmm. Um, on Twitter, we are in detail show all one word, and you can listen to us wherever you get your favourite podcasts: Spotify, Apple, um, Apple uh, Podcasts. Um, uh, we are sponsored by Stringtime and Archie Team, our great friends. Um, and um, for the full list of the people who make up this show, please head over to our website, and you can see the liner notes there. Very much looking forward to um, being in your ears next week when we will. We promise we'll be doing our last villains episode and we'll be shifting over to heroes. Is that true? Do we have a commitment? A I pinky think, promise? I think we've That's got more villains and then I think we'll get into the, the We'll get into the heroes. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. It's gonna be so positive. I'm negativity, <laughs> We're gonna have some be very mass- short <laughs> massive hugs. They'll be short lived, but they'll they'll be powerful. No, I think the, uh, yeah, getting to the um, great clients and how to position yourself to find those great clients and, you know, trying to talk about what you touched on, Kate, profiling the client that you want. Yep. That's yep. interesting. Yeah, that's where right. this is all headed, people. See yeah, you yeah. then. Taking the long, long route to it. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.